Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode 24. Today we talk to Nicholas Breezewood. Nick is from Pembrokeshire, Wales, and is the editor of Sacred Hoop magazine, a leading international magazine about shamanism, which has been published since 1993. He is also a musician, experienced craft worker, and artist. He has been a shamanic practitioner for over 30 years, combining it with the more shamanic end of Tibetan Buddhism and medicine teachings from Native North American people. He makes traditional shamanic ritual objects and has a special interest in the sacred and ritual objects found in Central Asian and Siberian shamanism, Tibetan Buddhism, and the Native American medicine path. He runs Three Worlds, an online gallery showcasing these beautiful ritual antiques, and that's the number three worlds.co.uk. And these objects are for sale. He is the author of four books, which we'll talk about at the end of the show. And some of Nick's music will also be played at the end of the show, and it's probably actually playing in the background right now as I'm talking. Uh, thank you to all of our patrons, long time and new. We continue to appreciate the support and have plans for upgrading some equipment here soon, which is directly possible because of your support. In other news, we're uh, thinking about releasing two episodes a month rather than one, starting maybe soon-ish. Uh, we've just got so many great people lined up to chat with, um, we figure we should probably do that, but we're still trying to uh, see if that will work. It's actually a significant commitment if you want to have any semblance of quality. Uh, my hat goes off to some of these podcasters that put out multiple quality episodes a month consistently. It's actually a lot of work, um, but I also might be making it harder than it needs to be. That's very possible. We dedicate this episode to Hermes, and may any merits we accumulate be extended to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Welcome to the show. We are here with our special guest, Nicholas Breezewood, and we're really honored and pleased to have you on the show today, and we're really looking forward to this discussion. Welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Yes, and we are also joined by Janice, as always. Welcome, Janice. Welcome. I'm glad to be here and um, excited about our conversation today. So, Mr. Breezewood, we oh, are... Oh, no, too formal. <laughs> okay nicholas we oh, are nick, here nick 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 yeah okay. let's let's get let's, this on friendly terms before we start let's, okay <laughs> let's let's shave it down okay nick <laughs> <laughs> we got you on the show you are a very um influential voice out there in the spiritual circles and you've been talking about uh, shamanism for many years you've been practicing for many years you run the very influential and popular uh, magazine, Sacred Hoop, and we thought it would be great to have you on and maybe pick your brain about some things. Yeah, good. So to start, maybe can we talk about your journey, how this all came about? You've been doing this for a few decades now. Yeah. Okay. How, how, did, this, how did this happen? Well, when I was a kid, 
I was always kind of a bit weird and um, I was dyslexic or I still am dyslexic. And uh, I was brought up in a, a little village school. And back in those days, dyslexia kind of didn't exist. I mean, people didn't know about it at all. So I was just considered to be stupid and stuck in remedial classes. So I kind of didn't integrate terribly well with the rest of the school. I used to get bullied quite a lot. And I used to spend a lot of time by myself because it was easier than trying to hang around and make friends. So uh, I, I would hang around in the fields and because uh, I lived in a tiny little village and just be out in nature quite a bit. And I kind of became aware of stuff, um, not in any structured way, but it was kind of like it was there. But this was growing up in the 60s in, uh, in Britain where there wasn't really a lot of spirituality stuff around. I mean, the culture was kind of vaguely Church of England Christian, and I wasn't kind of around hippies or anything like that. So it was it was very ordinary. So I kind of didn't have ways of making sense about it. When I was a little bit older, as a teenager, I went and lived in Australia. And uh, there the land was so big and so powerful, and it kind of blew me apart a bit. Some of the sort of places out in the deserts, they were just so in- immense and and so amazingly powerful. But again, I kind of didn't have any vocabulary for it. I was kind of aware that there was something there, but I, I had no frame of reference, you know? And yeah. uh, so I came back to Britain when I was in my mid-teens, and uh, I started to kind of just become more and more aware of things. And, and it was like the spirits were talking to me, but not in a kind of like hallucinogen way. You know, I wasn't having um, sort of like hearing voices or anything like that, but it's like I knew things. I kind of had kind of like compulsions to create altars and kind of knew what to do on a kind of like deep level. Um, and, uh, so I kind of, again, I kind of fumbled my way and followed that as much as I was able to, but again, really difficult because there was no framework for it. So I was kind of exploring all of that. And, uh, there's, there's a, a British expression about people that can't hear very well or, you know, don't want to listen. And somebody is described as having cloth ears and I had cloth ears. I really couldn't <laughs> hear the spirits very well at all, but they were banging on my door, as it were. Um, and I got quite dysfunctional, really, to be honest, at that time. I was, uh, I think, the, the, the trauma of early school and whatever and, and, and feeling kind of fairly out of sorts with the culture. Um, it was a difficult time for me. So eventually... I kind of uh, got myself together a little bit and I went and trained in social work and I trained as a psychotherapist and worked in a mental health day center. And uh, there the staff were were kind of into things like Castaneda and stuff like that. And um, this, this, was, uh, this was best part of 40 years ago now. And, uh, and it was then that I first sort of came across the word shamanism. I guess I'd have been about 25, something like that, 25, 26. And uh, it all made sense, you know, in terms of what I'd experienced for the rest of, you know, the, the first bits of my life. And, uh, and then various circumstances, I end up, ended up meeting somebody that was uh, just come back from the States where they'd been working with Native American medicine people. 
And I ended up kind of working with them quite a lot and learning some of the medicine wheel teachings. And I came sort of back from my first encounter with that, um, kind of knowing that my life had changed somehow. And I had to sort of do it as in a full-time way, for want of a better way of putting it. And that's, that's what I did. That was, that, that was when I was 27. So I've been doing this stuff kind of as my day job in inverted commas since I was 27. And I'm 62 now. And, uh, and I was always in the right place at the right time. Um, back then, it was very much a time where Native American, especially sort of Plains cultures, people like the Lakota and, and others would, would come over to Britain and they would teach. And it seemed to be a time when Native Americans were kind of opening the doors to, to sort of white folks. And uh, so I, I was always in the right place at the right time and people would give me teachings and it just made sense. So it kind of went on from there. Okay. At what point and how many years later did you venture into uh, maybe the Mongolian, the Asian sham- shamanistic world? Gradually. I always wanted to kind of um, become uh, sort of involved in Buddhism. I, I realized I was a Buddhist around about the age of 11. And, uh, and, and every time I went to Buddhist groups, they, they, all they wanted to do was sit on their bums and meditate. And, and there was a deep part of me that kind of felt this isn't what I think of as Tibetan traditions. Mm. And, uh, and then gradually I kind of realized that actually a lot of what I was actually looking for was the sort of Mongolian and that kind of area shamanic traditions. And there's a lot of Buddhism within that. And it's also incredibly close in many ways to the traditions of the Plains people of the States. So there's a lot of sort of similarities between, say, the Lakota or the Cheyenne kind of worldview with, with the Mongolian worldview. It's, it's partially it's the big open space, and partially it's because those people kind of originated in sort of the Mongolian area anyway back in time. So uh, I guess I gradually kind of moved into it. It's hard for me to give you a date. Uh, it was always an interest, but I suppose over the last sort of mm, 10, 15, maybe 20 years, it's become more important to me. Okay. When did you head over there physically? For- oh, I've not been over there. Oh, you haven't? Okay. There. No, 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 no. They, I'm, as I say, I've always in the right place at the right time. People come to me. so. Uh, we started Sacred Hoop magazine 27 years ago, and I was bringing up small kids at that time too, and the magazine was never a big earner. So I was totally tied to the magazine, totally tied to raising kids, and totally penniless as well. So I know the um, feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, no, I, I, I feel that kind of spirit's been really kind to me because you know, I, I, I don't travel a lot. I've just never been able to, time and financially. And, uh, and so things have come to me and that's, that's just been a lot easier. Oh, absolutely. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, I remember reading, uh, sacred hoop God, like 20 years ago, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I, and, and, uh, you know, 20 years ago I was 20. So it, it was, I mean, even before that, maybe like even 24 years ago, I mean, I remember as a teenager being really excited about reading it. Good. Dominic and I were really passionate about shamanism probably from like 15, 16 on. And, uh-huh. you know, there weren't a lot of uh, legitimate resources for uh-huh. it out there. I mean, 
you know, you see Michael Harner stuff and Angelus Arian and people of that ilk. But when you want to get meat, you'd either have to get something academic or find a good, you know, the, there was uh, Sacred Hoop and I think Shaman's Drama. Yeah, that was a good magazine too. Yeah, it was. So, I mean, you're, you, you may not have realized that you were making a difference, but I mean, I think that you were reaching a lot of people and you still continue to reach a lot well, of people. That's nice to this. know. It kind of, that's, that's what we tried to do. I mean, we, Faith and I, Faith, Faith Knowlton, who used to be called Jan Morganwood, um, she, uh, she started the magazine really. And that was, like I say, 27 years ago when I was sort of assistant editor and uh, Faith kind of retired from it a few years back. And, and, you know, we used to take it in turns to be editorship, you know, but, um, you know, when she sort of retired from it, I sort of took it over and now I'm the editor, but she's still kind of around. It's nice, but we set it up because there was no literature, there was no books, and it was pre-internet days too, so there was no kind of online community. Everybody was very isolated and kind of grasping around in the darkness trying to find stuff. So uh, it came to us via spirit. It was very much a, a spirit thing. And in fact, for me, I had a powerful dream where uh, I, I, was, uh, I was walking a, across a car park in the dream. This was a couple of years before we even thought of doing a magazine. And uh, a, a woman, uh, I realized that she was a spirit, but she came in the form of a woman, kind of stopped me in the car park and dumped a magazine in my hand, but I knew in the dream that it wasn't just a magazine. It was like a magazine. And uh, uh, I, I, I woke up and sat up in bed and uh, maybe you'll have to edit this out, but, but apparently I exclaimed, no fucking way. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Faith, Faith was in bed with me at the time and, uh, and, and kind of, I woke her up and I explained the dream. And then and then we we were doing some ceremony uh, a little while after that, and it just became apparent that we had to form the magazine, and that's kind of how it happened. So it's always been a sacred thing, uh, and it's never been an never been an earner. I don't I don't get much of a wage from the magazine. I have to supplement my income. It's very much a giveaway because um, it's there's just no money in that kind of thing. But uh, but it, it it's good that it does things and it connects people, and that's kind of what it's all about. Well, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, the traditional, as far as I understand, and my understanding isn't anywhere where yours is on the subject, but as far as I understand, I mean, dreams are, are worldwide are a traditional uh, method of spirit communication. They are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have quite a few dreams, dreams where spirits come to me and tell me things and tell me to make things and, uh, and give me teachings and all of that stuff. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I don't do it in a controlled way. You know, I couldn't tell you how to kind of be a good dreamer, but it just kind of happens. And, uh, and I'm grateful when it does. I really enjoy dreaming. But it's, it's yeah, it's an important important sort of um vessel for, for for teachings to come for the spirits to come it sounds like your your uh introduction and your journey has, has been very natural flowing uh yeah i think so narrative. yeah 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 that's what i've tried i i i work from home i when i teach people i tend to teach them in my house i've never been sort of one for doing big workshops and, and kind of going to centers and venues and going down that whole kind of circus route, which I, I feel is so artificial. Mm -hmm. And I often kind of jokingly say I do kitchen table shamanism and people kind of come and do shamanism around my kitchen table, because for me, that's how I live. And that's real. 
And uh, I think there's an awful lot of kind of fantasy and escapism sometimes in the workshop scene. Um, and, and people, I've known people that kind of go, it's almost like a mini weekend break, a holiday, mm-hmm. and they'll learn things on a weekend and then they'll go back to their ordinary lives and they kind of don't even sort of integrate them in any way, shape or form. So for me, it's about this is how you live. Yeah. So if you don't mind, let's back up a, uh, a little bit mm. and define shamanism, what it is and what it isn't from your okay. perspective. All right. Okay. Nick opens a can of worms. Yep, here we um, go. <laughs> for me, shamanism is really, really about trance. If you don't have a trance aspect to it, uh, then it's not shamanism. And that's the key definition for me. So my potted definition of shamanism, and it's not just mine, this is the one that I use, is that a shaman is someone who can go into a controlled, repeatable trance state, kind of at will, or they have methods which they can employ to do it. And when they're in that trance state, they A, go off and go to the spirit lands where the spirits are, and B, they get taken over by spirits who come into them from those spirit lands. And when they are off with the spirits in the spirit lands, they meet with their own spirit helpers, and they then go and work with other spirits, either to negotiate with them, to fight them, or to um, trick them, in whatever ways it needs to be done, in order to make physical effects in this world. Um, And when the spirits come into the shaman, They tend very often in traditional cultures to be the spirits of former shamans and they come in and work through the shaman to kind of give teachings and advice and healings using the shaman's body and voice to members of the shaman's community. So that's, that's my kind of working definition of shamanism. Now it gets very blurry around the edge because lots of cultures have trance But very often in those cultures, um, for want of a better word, the congregation go into trance and they don't know if they're going to or not. They turn up for a ceremony and the spirits come down and they kind of go into some of the congregation and the congregation go into trance. Um, That's very different in a way to a kind of expert in inverted commas, i.e. the shaman, uh, kind of doing it in a controlled, repeatable way. And of course, a lot of traditions are not shamanistic at all, but they still work deeply with spirits. Um, I always think of it as a bit like uh, being on the telephone. A lot of cultures are animistic Mm. and they kind of phone the spirits and talk to them on the spirit line. But a shaman kind of goes and visits the spirits and that's the kind of difference. So an animistic tradition won't necessarily employ uh, trance. For instance, a lot of Native American traditions are not shamanistic in the strict sense of the word. They're animistic. They work deeply and powerfully with spirits, but they, the, the practitioners don't go into trance and go and visit them. And even when you get medicine people like, uh, like Nicholas Black Elk from Black Elk Speaks, he had his famous vision, but it came to him when he was ill. He didn't kind of 
bring it on because he knew how to bring it on and he didn't kind of repeat it. It, it happened to him. And you get the same things uh, like on a vision quest. People will go out on the hill for four days and kind of cry for a vision. And if they're lucky, they will have a vision. But it's not like they can kind of go into that trance state at the drop of a hat like a shaman does. Yeah, crazy horse comes to mind. I, I yeah, mean. absolutely. Yeah. So, yes. So you don't have to be a shaman to go into trance. Um, and it's, no, no, no. It sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of people that may think they are practicing shamanism in the West are just practicing animism then yeah i think that's fair comment and i think that's absolutely fine i think if the world had more animists in it the world would be a damn sight better place (laughs) and animism is is a brilliant and ancient tradition and it's very powerful i mean you look at some of the old medicine people my god they were powerful guys uh and uh you know you don't have to be a shaman to do powerful work okay so since we're talking about animism for those in the audience who may not be familiar, would you mind defining it from your perspective? Yeah, sure. Um, animism and shamanism, because shamanism is just a form of animism, really, believes that, uh, or I don't like using the word believes, they have an animist has the understanding that everything is alive. They don't believe everything is alive. They have an understanding that everything is alive. So the stars, a mountain, all of the birds, obviously, all of the animals, all of the trees, the stones, the waters, fire, the wind, everything. Everything is alive and it has a spirit. And an animist and a shaman kind of relate to each of those spirits. Uh, and the difference is that the shamans go into trance, but it's, it's kind of from the same, you know, the same place. Shamanism arose out of... Uh, out of animism. I sometimes hear people sort of say, you know, who was the first shaman or how did the first shaman get to be a shaman or whatever. And shamanism very gradually emerged. It, it arose out of animism. Animism's the old, the old sort of tradition. Um, there's another sort of thing that people often say that uh, shamanism is the root of all religions. Uh, and, and again, that isn't correct. Animism is the root of all religions, yes. But shamanism arose quite late, really. Um, a lot of experts uh, who are generally nowadays called shamanologists, which is a great word, um, <laughs> think that uh, shamanism kind of developed only about sort of somewhere between ten and 15,000 years ago. So it's fairly recent, but animism is much older, going right back. I mean, you know, there's evidence that Neolithic people, uh, not Neolithic, um, Neanderthals rather, were uh, um, animistic. You know, we're talking 40,000, 50,000 years ago, even probably longer. But shamanism is, is more recent, and it kind of developed gradually out of all of those, all of those thousands of generations of people doing animistic practice. So, there's certain- so there was no first. I was going to say, so there was no first shaman as such in that way. You know, it, it just gradually evolved. What were you going to say? I'm sorry for interrupting you. Um, That's all right. So, so there's actually a, there's, there is a, like a sort of contingency and an overlap and a development. Like there's still a relationship that's implicit between animism and shamanism, but you, yeah. like you can have shamanism, 
you can have animism without shamanism, but you can't have shamanism without animism. Would you say that's right? Yes, that's absolutely true. That's, that's beautifully put. And, and of course, the other thing that confuses stuff is that, okay, if, you, if you've got like a, a Native American medicine person to the left of you and a Mongolian shaman to the right of you, they'll actually do a lot of the same practices because when a shaman is working, not technically not everything they do is shamanism because it doesn't involve a trance. So they do lots of animistic stuff. And a lot of those animistic practices are very similar to Native American ones or any culture. I mean, in a way, there's a similarity between all cultures because we're all two-legged beings walking on the earth with sticks and feathers and you know, rocks and animals around. And we have all of the same materials. And we also have the same kind of genetic route that goes right back to Africa. So, you know, it's, we're just two-legged. We kind of tend to do things and we tend to think in broadly the same way everywhere. So what about the term, and I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, tengerism, tengerism? Uh, tengerism. Okay. Tengerism is sort of the animism beneath shamanism in Central Asia and Mongolia. Um, it's kind of, uh, I don't want to call it a religion, but it's kind of like... Um, sort of the spirituality of the people who aren't shamans, I guess is a good way of putting it. It's their worldview. It's their understanding about how the universe works. And it's, it's just basic animism. And again, it's very similar to Native American or Australian Aborigine or Celtic from these lands. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's just people look at the world and there are kind of universal truths about the way the world operates and and that's you know that's kind of how it's developed but it's it's i mean tengerism is kind of specific and it's got specific spirits and things in it which are more localized to central asia and mongolia but but in its broad sense it's it's basically exactly the same thing it's just animism okay thank you so um it's interesting because a lot of your stories is pretty relatable for janice and i like he had mentioned we were um, interested in shamanistic practices in our in our teens and mm -hmm. we we also didn't have the internet to fall back on so we we found a lot of kind of dubious practices and sources at the time there was no way to know what was right and what was wrong necessarily yeah, absolutely yeah i'm the same so what are what are some of the biggest myths and kind of incorrect romantic romantic <laughs> i'm not going to be able to say that word <laughs> in the west we romanticize a lot of things so uh, yeah. Of course, that that happens with shamanism as well. What are the biggest myths you think that people are are kind of uh, engaging in or or working with nowadays when it comes to shamanism? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, for me, I'm I'm kind of gonna bring Carlos, dear Carlos, into onto the table here. Carlos Castaneda. He yes. turned so many people on. You know, I'm so grateful to Carlos because. I wouldn't have really done kind of, you know, found my path, done what I've done without him. And yet the more I've learned, not just about shamanism, but about Native American traditions, the more I realize that it's, it's just not describing shamanism. And then, you know, there's all sorts of stuff around the fact that, that, you know, he was a bit of a dubious person and 
he's a good novelist. I always call Carlos a really good novelist. He wrote wonderful, wonderful fantasy stories uh, with universal truths in, and that's what hooks people. And I don't think there's any harm in reading them at all, and I don't think there's any harm in trying to kind of extrapolate some of those universal truths. But uh, I think it's really, you know, if, if people kind of really think that he was the bee's knees and, and, and he's the real McCoy, then I suggest people kind of read some stuff about kind of, in inverted commas, proper shamanism or real shamanism. And, uh, you know, that, that yeah, just, just, just educate yourselves, guys. Um, but enjoy his books. You know, I've read his books hundreds of times over the years. They're still good books. And he was a good writer. Yeah, we were big fans of yeah. Castaneda's work. Uh, very fun books. Although we, yeah. of course, took them as being true at the time. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you know, it's kind of like Kenneth Grant. It, you know, it, the the you can glean, I mean, and there's almost a tradition of this sort of uh, pseudo-autobiographical, uh, pseudo-esoteric, uh, but you know narratives in 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 the Western world, but in a way, sometimes you can discover um, gems within within these stories that actually can improve or, or contribute to your personal practice. Yeah, and now, you know, universal truths can be found in all sorts of places. So yeah, definitely. Um, I was thinking while you were talking, I think another kind of myth that is probably good to talk about is is a big one that's really gained popularity in the last few years around shamanism and uh, ethnogens. Um, now, uh, most shamanic traditions in the world actually don't work with ethnogens. Um, in South America, in the Amazon, uh, yes, of course they do. And there are also some cultures in Siberia that work with flyagric mushrooms. But in the main sort of way, it's, it's just not that big a part of shamanism. And yet there's a sort of movement, you know, especially with the rise of ayahuasca tourism and things, that people think that, you know, shamanism equates drinking some foul stuff that sends you on a trip. Um, I've worked with different medicine teachers and shamans for a long, long time, and I've not worked with a single one of them that actually works with, with what I call as teacher plants in their tradition. So it's really not essential. Um, and I'm not at all against it either. If anybody wants to work with teacher plants, I say go for it, but I'm going to put a caveat with that and say, but do it right. I really don't like the kind of um, plant abuse that happens nowadays. I think if you're going to work with teacher plants, you need to kind of really work with it in a, in a traditional way. You need to learn the ceremonies. You need to learn the songs. You need to pay utmost respect to the spirit of the plant and kind of do it properly so that you're not abusing the plant. Because at the end of the day, the plant is a spirit. And shamanism is about working with the spirits. It's not about abusing the spirits. And I think there's an awful lot of abuse that goes on in some of those kind of um, ethnogenic shamanic kind of courses and things. I am so grateful to you for saying that. Um, this is a major gripe of mine because uh, I, I have a deep respect for the spirits of the plants mm. of all mm. kinds, you know, not just entheogens, but just all plants. They're people. Yeah, quite. There they're 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 just as conscious as we are maybe in a different way but yes and i think it's rooted in the western sort of reductionistic materialistic attitude yeah. because people objectify 
they objectify the plants as entheogens, as, as even if they see the entheogens as having a sacred quality, they're not recognizing that that sacredness is actually the coming from the consciousness of, of a being, yeah. an actual being with an intelligence and an identity with feelings and thoughts. And that's worth developing a relationship with. I mean, it, in most, in most shamanic traditions, in animistic traditions that involve entheogens, you're an apprentice for like 20 years, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. 10, 20 years. And so, so I do want to ask you, um, working with spirits, mm-hmm. uh, you've basically been doing that since your early mm-hmm. days. Um, and everybody that's attempted to work with spirits, they, you know, you go through a process where you have to learn to listen and know the difference between your own inner monologue yep. And the spirits, and because even the problem is, once you start to develop those interior senses, the mind, the monkey mind, will even try and mimic mm-hmm. that. So, uh, do you have any advice for people who are trying to develop the the skills to interact with spirits? I think the only thing I can offer is is kind of practice and experience. It's it's shamanic air miles. You know, you you really got to kind of do the spade work. And it gets easier. I think it gets easier to trust the spirits and it gets easier to kind of feel when you are tricking yourself or when you're starting to make things up. At the beginning, we all doubt. We all kind of think, well, did I make that up or whatever? And gradually over the years, you kind of learn that the you know the stuff that the spirits say has a particular quality to it, and you kind of learn to recognize that quality. That's not to say even I at this stage I still question myself. It's important to question yourself, and sometimes I'm kind of thinking, you know, did I make that up? But you kind of learn to trust the spirits. Um, there's no short path. There's no shortcut to it. It's just it's just air miles. And do you go into trance when you are contacting your spirits, or is there a different? Yeah. No, I go no. into trance. I, I work in quite a quite a traditional way. Um, uh, I I I mean, it's ugh, how can I describe this? It's hard. Um, I used to kind of I, I I learned to journey with the Hana method, the kind of classical core shamanism, and I I think that's a great way for people in the West to learn, and then. I sort of, you know, I, I mean, I did my first shamanic journey in that way kind of 35 years ago or something. And um, it uh, gra- gradually over the years, as I've built a deeper and deeper relationship with the spirits, they have taught me. Ultimately, the spirits are your teacher. They are the main teacher. And I always say that a human teacher is really important, but it's like a marriage arranger. It's like a it's like you go to a marriage arranger and they introduce you to, to your beloved and they tell you how not to mess up on the date and how not to really irritate them and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So they kind of arrange it so that when you're in a good relationship with the spirits, you kind of can step back from the marriage arranger because their job is done. But they're kind of really important at the beginning. Otherwise, you might stuff up on the first date and the spirits may never speak to you again. So, um, so yeah, I go into trance. I, I, I don't really do core shamanism anymore. My, my practice has changed so much over the last 20 years, especially. Um, 
but uh, I, 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 I wear ritual costumes in a kind of Mongolian way, which uh, are called armor because they protect the shaman and, uh, and they're alive too. In an animistic world, everything is full of spirits. So your, your ritual costumes, your armor are full of spirits. So I, I kind of put that on and, to be honest, I'm kind of half there anyway when I'm putting that on and I feel the spirits coming to me. And sometimes it gets really difficult to kind of put the things on because it's like I'm kind of, I'm gone, you know? And, uh, and then the spirits come into me in a kind of whoosh and, um, they're quite fierce. It's, uh, people have, have, who've sort of seen me working will kind of can, can be a bit freaked by it because, uh, and, and if you've ever seen films of Mongolian shamans, it's like they, they're, they're kind of aggressive. They're kind of, um, they shout sometimes or, or they growl or they make sudden movements. And it's, it's, it's overwhelming. I mean, when the spirits come in, I, I never know what's going to happen. And it's, it's a very hard thing to describe, but I, I describe it a bit like, when you're driving in your car, you're kind of in control. But when you go into trance, you move over to the passenger seat and somebody else kind of is driving. And then that's a shallow trance. And if it's a deeper trance, then you're maybe on the back seat of the car and you're aware of what's going on, but you've got no control over it. And if it's even deeper, then maybe you're in what we call the boot. And I think Americans call the trunk at the back of the car. It's like you're still being bumped about by the journey, but you can't even really see what's going on. And if you're really, really, really deep in trance, you're outside the car and the spirits are driving the car and you have no idea what's going on. A lot of shamans uh, will, will say it's like that. They say that if they remember what's happened, then they, they kind of weren't there properly. Um, the, especially in some of the Himalayan traditions, like in Ladakh and places like that, the shamans, they, they really have no, or at least they say they have no recollection whatsoever of, of what has happened when the spirits have come into them. That's fascinating. And it's really interesting. We spoke to fairly recently, a gentleman on the Afro-Caribbean, uh, uh, religious practice. And a mm -hmm. lot of that centers around trance. Yeah. And it sounds extremely similar yeah really being they they have the word ridden don't they i think mm -hmm. you know they, they 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 sort of say they're ridden by the spirits and it's it's totally like that so when i'm doing a healing or something like that i if i know what i'm going to do next then i know i'm not doing it properly because i'm too conscious mm. so you know it's it i'm just it, it's just it it does it through me um, it's, it's kind of a weird experience. It's kind of hard to describe. We don't have language in our culture for these things, which is part of the trouble. I mean, in, you know, in, in, in other cultures, there will be specific kind of jargon words, which the shamans would use to describe all of these things in intricate, fine detail. But we're so clumsy in the West. I'm, I'm putting together the next issue of Sacred Hoop magazine, issue 107. And, um, part of what I'm doing in it is, a whole kind of series of little linked articles about the nature of spirits, because we in the West kind of just have the term spirit, but another culture will have this sort of spirit, that sort of spirit, you know, and it's like, and these spirits all have kind of where they live and what they do and what they look like. And, and, and we just don't have that sophistication. 
I think we probably did, but I think we lost it a lot. I think I think part of our, our problem with our culture is not not just the sort of heavy overlay of Christianity, which I I think has, has done a lot of damage, but also the Industrial Revolution and people moving away from the land and going and living in cities and the whole kind of fragmentation, especially in Europe, perhaps less in America, because you guys kind of ended up there sort of almost, you know, you didn't you didn't have that kind of step from the industrial revolution to the cities you kind of just gradually grew the cities so it kind of wasn't quite the same but then you guys also migrated away from your homelands and some of your folk traditions will have been brought with you but you but you're an incredibly displaced people um perhaps in some ways even more than people who, you know, maybe their ancestors moved to London back in the 1820s or something to go and work in a factory. So it's, it, there's been so much sort of um, fracturing in all of our cultures, I think. And I think it's definitely true. I mean, the modern Western person is uh, often, I think, collectively, the West is in a state of identity crisis, and and even more even more so in I think in in the U.S. where yeah. there is so the majority of the population is displaced from the lands of their ancestors, and and um, given that shamanism works so much on a spirit model, um, you know, which involves possession, being written, communication, you know, a major component of spirits spirits spiritual models is ancestral. Um, you know connections, and I think that it's it, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes for people in the West to even wrap their head around that. Even though they're, that's what they're, if you had spoken to their ancestors about it going far enough back, it would have seemed like second nature to them. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I was actually thinking a little bit about this before we set up this call um, because uh, I kind of thought, well, you guys probably think I live in England, and uh, and I don't. I live in Wales, and Wales. <laughs> You know, a lot of Americans kind of think, well, England and Wales, what's the difference? And it's actually a huge difference. And, um, I mean, we've got our own government for a start. We're a separate country, but uh, not not completely, but in, in part. Anyway, my main point was I'm, I'm surrounded by ancient sites, which are sort of four, five, six thousand years old. Some of our field walls are five thousand years old. And... And there are probably, not exaggerating, there's probably way more than a thousand sacred sites, standing stones and things like that, within uh, 20 miles of where I'm talking. And they were made by my ancestors, you know, probably direct blood ancestors going right back to that. And the valley that I live in, there's there's legends. Uh, I live in a little valley. I live in the west of Wales in, in a place called Pembrokeshire. And the valley that I live in um, has got a little river going down the bottom of it called the Keech. And uh, the, the valley is written about in the, an ancient medieval Welsh book called the Mabinogion. And the Mabinogion is sort of fanciful, wonderful, magical stories, fairy stories, if you like. And so for probably at least a thousand years, this valley that I live in was considered to be the portal to the spirit world. And in the stories, Prince Pulth meets, um, uh, oh, I can't remember the Welsh name of the king, but he was the king of the other world. Arwen or something like that his name is and he's he's uh, he's the king of the other world king of the fairies and they swap places 
at, uh, at the river. They kind of cross the river. And um, so, you know, and I live in this place that is full of these, these kind of ancient en- energies. And, uh, and there are places in my valley that are so full of fairy kind of feeling activity that it's difficult for humans to live there because, how can I put it? You get enchanted. You get, you get kind of distracted. Humans who live in those places have difficult sort of act getting their act together. It's like, it's like Manana land, you know, it's like, it's like they lose focus. They get enchanted by the place. And, um, and it's, that's very much part of the kind of the, the, the fey energy, the fairy energy. And so all around the land that I'm living in, I'm deeply connected to all of those kind of sacred sites, all of the, the sort of supernatural beings that, that are still remembered in these folk stories. And, and, um, you know, and, and, and they're, they're very much there and it's very much part of my DNA too. And I do, I do wonder how that must be for some people like in, in America or in Australia or other places that, that are going to these cultures. And unless you've got some native American DNA, then you're kind of not, on a land of your ancestors. And that, that's, that's a whole subtle, but I think quite powerful thing that affects people and definitely affects cultures. Yeah, I agree. And it's something I actually think about often. So thanks for rubbing it in. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I also think, I also think just, just briefly, that's another thing that I think is part of the fantasy stuff. I, I see it a lot in America. I've got to say this. Um, in, in American literature and workshops and stuff that people very naturally want to get in touch with their roots. So they kind of glorify and fantasize about Celtic shamanism yeah. and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, it, it becomes very romanticized. It becomes kind of Hollywoodized, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, so that's... Happens here too, but I think it's p- predominantly bad over in the yeah, States. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. Um, so... Um, going back to trance and ritual objects, because ritual objects and implements, tools, to- tokens mm. are a passion of yours, I believe. They are. Um, yeah, yeah. So when you go into trance, are you going into trance in in kind of a, a more of a calm meditative state, or are you using drumming, both? How do- I, yeah, I work with drum. Uh, it's definitely not calm and meditative. Um, I, I, I will when the spirits come into me. They're kind of they're kind of um, they're fierce. I guess is a good way of putting mm. it. Um, uh, they, they. I would use the term wrathful. They're 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 kind of they're aggressive and and um, so it's definitely not calm. And I I have songs that my spirits taught me. Um, best part of 20 years ago, which are for calling each of my individual spirit helpers. And so there's like six verses or seven verses or whatever it is. And so I sing those and uh, that's sort of um, inviting the spirits to come into me. And then, then, then they kind of do Um, mostly not always. You got to say that because that's also part of it. Sometimes they won't play ball. I, I, I don't do huge amounts of healing because I just don't have time to do it for people. I'm so busy kind of, you know, networking and educating and all that stuff with the magazine. But I remember a case a few years ago, I felt really sorry. There was this, this teenage girl that I really wanted to, to help. She had um, uh, a brain tumor. And um, a long time ago, my spirits gave me a, a big ceremony 
uh, which uh, I, I use for serious illness. I don't do it that often, but, but I, it seemed a natural for this. Um, so I, I really felt kind of like tugged by the, this, this poor kid that was, you know, really ill and wanted to do the ceremony. And so I, I did a, a little chat with my spirits beforehand and they said, well, you can do the ceremony if you like, but we won't be there. So, you know, there's no guaranteeing the spirits are in charge. I'm not in charge at all. And sometimes they kind of don't come. Um, and, uh, and then maybe I have to ask kind of like, why haven't you come? And they'll explain, you know, it's, it, it's, it's always a dialogue. That's another thing I always say to people. I think, I think a lot of people, when they learn shamanism, they kind of think of it as a bit like kind of watching a movie. And I, I always tell my students to be, to go bother the spirits. It's more like going shopping. You know, you've got to kind of like barge your way through the doors and talk to the shop assistants and maybe squeeze through a crowded area or whatever. And it's proactive. If you're just kind of like putting your hands behind your head and watching it like a Netflix film, then you're not doing it right. You've got to bother the spirits. You've got to really be a pain in the bum for them so that you're asking questions all the time and you're being proactive. It's not passive. Okay. And are you, when you do your, your journey and your trance, are you, is there a, vis, a visual component to it? Yeah, very okay. much. Sometimes, sometimes really hyper real, uh, sometimes less than that, but, but sometimes it's extraordinarily vivid. Um, I, I drum for myself um, and have done for about the last 20 years. And that doesn't mean that I'm doing a sort of continual bum, 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 like you might get on a drumming track. Sometimes I'll stop drumming. Sometimes I'll drum fast. Sometimes I'll drum slow. Sometimes I'll sort of, you know, drum in a certain rhythm. Sometimes it'll be just a sort of, you know, smooth, regular rhythm, whatever it is. And I, I've gotten to the sort of habit almost of looking through my drum like a window. It dawned on me a little while ago I was doing that because I kind of hold it up and cover my face with it. And, and I'm kind of looking through my drum and it's, it, it suddenly dawned on me that it's almost like I'm looking through it in, in a sort of like a window into the spirit world. Um, and yeah, I see things you know, in a way it's with the mind's eye, I've kind of, I'm doing it generally in the dark and I'm wearing a fringe face mask. Um, and I couldn't tell you if I got my eyes open or closed, to be honest, I've no idea. But, but so, but yeah, but, but it is, sometimes it's absolutely hyper real. It's, it, it's incredibly vivid. And other times it's more subjective and you, it's almost like you, you feel what's happening rather than seeing what's happening. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It does. I have a question for you related to this. Um, yeah, it yeah. seems like very much, um, you know, shamanism is also centered around the acquisition of development of concentration of an understanding of power. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit, you know, like how, well, what, what is the nature of power within the context of shamanism? <laughs> Wow, that's a nice small question. Um, <laughs> ah, power. Power is an extraordinarily difficult thing to talk about in a way. It, when, when you're doing healing or something like that, you're kind of not doing it. It's the spirits that are doing it. And I often think, in a way, my role is to witness what they do, not for me to be doing it. Um, and yet, 
then you'll get sort of certain ritual objects will have a certain power because they have a spirit in them. And again, it's the spirit that's powerful. I don't think I've got any power. I may have a certain amount of concentration, which enables me to sort of do what I do and, and, uh, and stay focused and, and, and all of that. But, you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't really know what power is in that way. I don't, I don't have power. I can't, I can't do anything. You know, I can hardly change a light bulb. But I can, I kind of know guys that can, for, for want of a better way of putting it. So I go ask the guys, you know, my spirits. So power is a really strange one. And, and then there's also the kind of the, the um, uh, I got a dear friend who was a teacher of mine called Jonathan Horvitz. He's an American guy that lives in, in Sweden. And uh, he uses two words, which I think are Danish. And, uh, they, uh, they have two words for different aspects of power. They have macht and kraft. Now, macht is might, is the power over, and kraft is the power with. So that's another form of power. It's like if I'm trying to do power over or I'm trying to get the spirits to do power over something, then you kind of get into, into shady areas. That's the stuff of sorcery and things like that. Um, I try and work not like that. I, I try and keep my will out of it. You know, there's a lovely kind of Christian prayer, which is um, something like, Lord, I will to do thy will or something like that. And, and for me, that's, that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, applies in shamanism too. It's like, it's not my agenda. I try and keep my agenda out. Like I said about that girl that I wanted to heal, you know, I wanted to do the ceremony. I wanted to do the big healing and, you know, do, do all of that stuff. And the spirits said, well, we're not going to be there because they're in charge. So power. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny one. Well, it, it does. I, bet, seem... I, bet that, I was going to say, I bet that doesn't answer your question at all. <laughs> no, it does. It's a good, it's a good lead in because, you know, um, when I, I, I'm thinking of power, I'm also thinking of exactly what you just mentioned. Um, like the classical sort of, um, uh, shaman via v sorcerers situation that you see in uh, uh, what appears to be many sh cultures that where their shamanism is present uh, and really it ends up it ends up often at least from the perspective of shamans it seems as though a sorcerer is a failed shaman or a shaman who became intoxicated with power as a goal rather than as an adjunct to the relationships with spirits and in the service of healing and creating balance. Would you say that's accurate? Yes and no. I, I would say that to a degree is accurate, but I think that's also one of the kind of fluffy myths of shamanism is that shamans are all love and light and they only do nice things for people. That's not true. Most traditional shamans will also curse people and do all sorts of stuff. Basically, if you pay them, they'll ask their spirits to do anything. They, they are not necessarily nice people and they're not all full of love in that way. And, and yet they'll also do healing too very often. But some, some will just be particularly mean and nasty and, you know, they, they do a lot of kind of just nasty stuff. So in that case, um, then what would separate the shaman from a sorcerer? Well, partially again, you're going back to the trance bit. I mean, if you're going to think of it in a in a a, a classical way, then a, sh a a sorcerer wouldn't necessarily go into trance and go off with the spirits. They would potentially more employ animistic magic. Um, and I think 
um, I, I tend to use sorcery as a sort of shorthand for, for, for power over. Um, technically, I think it's probably not really the real meaning of the word. I'm not sure that sorcery is in the proper sense of the word is, is either kind of good or bad. It's just another form of magic. But I think, I think, you know, over the years I've kind of used it as a shorthand for not very nice magic. Um, so, uh, and I think a lot of people use it in that way too nowadays. I think in general, it's, it's becoming more of a word for kind of, you know, magic that isn't necessarily wholesome. Um, but, but a sorcerer would, you know, in that sort of way would, would use a lot of, of, of different magical ways, but they wouldn't necessarily use shamanic ways. Remember, animism is very powerful. And so building on this conversation, I'd like to go back. You had mentioned Buddhism, um, in mm. Tibet, you see a lot of kind of rustic Buddhist practice that looks a lot like shamanism. Would you say that's true? Yes, I would very much. There's kind much. of a blurry yeah. line there. So how does that all work in your eyes? Okay. Um, when uh, Buddhism came into Tibet in the 8th century, when uh, there, was a, there was a kind of – there was a large state of which Tibet was – a part of, um, and uh, it was a shamanic state. Um, you know, the, the the religion in inverted commas was shamanism, and the king or the the regent or whatever of Tibet wanted to separate from that state, and so he started to call in uh, Buddhist magicians, and the main one being Padmasambhava, uh, who was uh, a, a Buddhist practitioner from probably from the Swat Valley of Pakistan. And um, so Padmasambhava came into Tibet and kind of converted the country, as it were. But he, he brought his Buddhism and merged it with all of the pre-Buddhist shamanic traditions that were still there. So those old traditions became kind of absorbed a little bit like Christianity absorbed some of the pagan practices. I mean, we have, you know, the, the Catholics in Ireland will have St. Bridget and, and, and Bridie was, was an old pre-Christian goddess. Mm -hmm. So it's the same kind of thing. Um, and uh, so these old traditions kind of merged with, with Buddhism and the form of Buddhism that Padmasambhava did wasn't anything like the, the, the kind of, uh, Southeast Asian Buddhist traditions. Uh, he was uh, he was a tantric Buddha or a tantric Buddhist, and so he was very much involved in in kind of wild magical Buddhism, if you like. So it fitted quite well with the shamanic stuff, you know, sub subduing land spirits and pinning down demons and all of this kind of stuff. Lots of exorcisms and magical flight and hurling thunderbolts at people and things. It wasn't anything like sitting under a tree meditating. You know, that's a whole different kind of form of Buddhism. And so um, those old traditions kind of stayed and they went into Buddhism. And, uh, and then gradually over the years in, in Tibet, there are different reform schools have come and uh, they, they've kind of cleared out some of the, the, the newer schools have cleared out some of those more magical practices, but they're still there in, uh, in, in, in what are called generally the red hats. Now, they're the oldest traditions. Padmasambhava formed the, the first red hat school, which is the Ningmapa. You know, they, they're the most kind of shamanic or the most magical. And that's the tradition that I'm actually associated with. So all of, all of the practices that I do are Ningmapa practices. 
And yes, they're very shamanic and very magical in, in that respect. And also you get things like the, uh, the, the Tibetan State Oracle. I don't know if any of you have ever sort of looked on YouTube and seen films of him. He's, he wears these incredible clothes and he waves a sword around and he has a hat that is so heavy that if he's not in trance, it's said to be able to snap his neck because it's incredibly heavy. And he goes into trance. And the spirit called Piha comes into him and kind of channels through him. And uh, that, he's a mountain spirit, Piha. And uh, he, uh, he gives sort of prophecies and warnings to the Dalai Lama. And he's, that's the state uh, oracle. But there are hundreds and hundreds of little oracles. You know, most monasteries and most villages will have a, 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 an oracle that kind of is similar. And they fulfill a shamanic role. They they get taken over by local land spirits very often or local guardian spirits. Very often they're the spirits of mountains. Um, and uh, they will do the healing and they will kind of give divinations and, you know, be, do the work of an oracle. Um, so, yes, it's incredibly, uh, it's incredibly sort of shamanic and magical. And I love that stuff. I've got to say, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a, big, a big part of what I do. Um, I work really with three traditions and I always had difficulty integrating these until about 10 or so years ago when my spirit showed me a plat of three colors and that that integrated them and it's like a rope of of the three traditions rather than trying to kind of do one at a time and then do the next and and whatever so I have this plat and I think of my path as a plat and the three traditions are three colors um, which are um, blue, which is the, the sort of Mongolian um, shamanic tradition, um, yellow, which is the sort of uh, Tibetan tradition, and, uh, and, and red, which uh, is the Native American tradition. And they form a plat of those three colors. So I work very much with those three traditions, and, and I don't kind of differentiate between them. And there's also an awful lot of similarity between them all too. Um, they're also the old three colors of the of the, uh, the the three worlds, which I quite like: red for the lower world, and yellow for the middle world, and blue for the sky world, the upper world. Interesting. Out of those three lineages, which one do you think you lean on most heavily, or or is there no way to tell? They all just blend. There, uh, I think two, two really. It's the Mongolian and the Tibetan. Um, and uh, I, I've decided not to do it, but I was uh, I was offered to take an ordination this year. Um, to actually um, become uh, like a Tibetan shaman called a Nagpa. And uh, I've sat with it for a long time, and I don't think it's quite right for me at this time. But uh, Rinpoche that I know kind of um, offered me that ordination. So that very much would have married those two worlds together. And I still do Native American stuff. I kind of think Native American in many ways, because the first teachings that I learned were the medicine wheel teachings. And that's that's kind of my cosmology. It makes sense of the world. And uh, I, I work with the sacred pipe. I, I learned sacred pipe about 30-odd years ago from Lakota teachers and, and from other nations as well. And I do a regular pipe ceremony in my house for local people to turn up to. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I still, I'm still very much involved in, in that kind of way, but it, it's, I don't quite use it in quite the same way. I don't work so much with Native American objects and things like that, but it does, it does sort of um, color my perception of the world, I think is a good way of putting it. Now, um, 
I've noticed it seems as though you have a robust and a pretty positive relationship with the with the nagas, with the with the serpent spirits yes. of uh, associated with water. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to just, you know, uh, explain maybe a little bit to our audience, you know, what are what are nagas and um, what is the role of a shaman who interacts with them? What do they? What 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 role do the nagas play in the sort of spiritual ecosystem? And what do you in turn do? Uh, What's what's your role in your relationship with them? Yeah, okay. Um, need to go. I guess I need to go right back to childhood here. Um, when I was this dyslexic kid that kind of would run out into the fields and get away from his classmates because they were beating me up, there was uh, a place that I used to get drawn to all the time, which was a pool, and this place frightened the hell out of me and really 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 scared me and i kept coming back to it i'd have been about eight or nine at the time you know it's like i'd think about it when i when i wasn't there and i'd go back and then i'd be really frightened and i'd I'd run away literally physically run away from it and feel like i was being chased and i'd kind of have to look behind me and it used to scare the bejesus out of me and um and then i'd kind of go back you know the next day it was like this magnet and um it was only a long time after, really, in the last few years, that I've twigged that um, there was. Uh, it, it's to do with a naga. Now, nagas are are like water spirits. They occur in every culture, pretty much, and they're very often in the form of a snake. Obviously, not always called nagas. That's a Sanskrit word. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it, and they're not always in snake form, but all cultures have them. In Wales, um, there are water fairies, and I'm struggling to remember the long and complicated Welsh name for them, and I can't remember it. But they live in lakes, and uh, they were said to be kind of farmers, and they, they would be water sheep and water cows, and they had villages down there, and these beings would come out of the lake and talk to people and entrance them, and you know, the, then the people would follow them into the lake and drown. And you get the same sort of things in Tibet too, and in other cultures. So nagas are really important. Um, I was talking to, uh, I got a, a Mongolian shaman friend, and uh, she is of the opinion that I was made uh, a shaman. I'm not claiming I'm a shaman, this is her words. Uh, but, but she says I was kind of made the way I am because of the Nagas. Uh, it's one of the ways that you can become uh, a shaman, apparently, in, in her tradition. Uh, so they've always kind of been there for me in that way. They are spirits of water, but they're more than that. Um, they're also related to dragons. Uh, I've got a, a, a Nepali shaman friend who talks about Nagas when they're in the, in the earth. Uh, and dragons when they're in the sky they uh they're they're kind of feisty is a good way of putting it naggers get really upset really easily and they get very pissed off with humans because humans are forever messing around with water supplies and polluting rivers and doing all this that and the other you know and uh and so there's an awful lot of illnesses associated with naggers uh, because they take revenge on humans. I always say that I don't work with naggers, but naggers work with me sometimes because it would be presumptuous for me to even think about saying that I have a special relationship with them because I, I, I 
I'm too scared of them to be quite frank with you. Um, they they are capricious. They they are quick to anger. They are they are difficult beings, but they're very important. They they live in the ground. They're in Mongolian traditions and in Tibetan traditions too. They're associated with another being called a sabdag. Sabdag's a, a Tibetan word, but they use it in Mongolian shamanism as well, and it means earth lord. Um, they are the regional spirits of of, of a place. They um, Tibetans describe them as a little bit like uh, like village chieftains, and the whole country is is made up of little little kind of. Um, do, you, do you know the expression fiefdom, fiefdom, fiefdom? It's a kind of medieval yes. phrase. Yep. Yeah. So it's like there's all these fiefdoms across the place, and and, and each fiefdom has a, a savdag, and then there are bigger savdags, which are kind of like national savdags, and and the the nagas are sort of their messengers and. There's this sort of real dialogue all the time between the Sabdags and the Nagas. So I, I, I kind of live in a house which is a bit like a temple for the Nagas. And uh, there's a Naga by my front door and I make regular offerings to them and pay as much respect as I possibly can and work with the local ones in the village river, the, you know, the Keith that I was talking about earlier that flows sort of 100 yards away from my house. And uh, I've got a, a friend in the village that uh, uh, is, is also works with Mongolian traditions. And uh, he, he very much uh, sort of has the same mind of, of that. He has a tree in his garden, which he makes offerings to the Nagas on a daily basis. He goes out and makes uh, milk offerings and things. I do that too, uh, more on stones in my garden than, uh, than trees. But then, Sometimes I'll go down to the river and I'll make offerings of, uh, of semi-precious stones, turquoise and coral, and even sometimes little bits of gold. And it's just keeping on the right side of them. They're, they're very powerful. They are incredibly beneficial. A lot of cultures think of them as bringing the rains, which is probably why there's an awful lot of them in Wales. And um, they also are seen as the as the kind of guardians of treasure, both spiritual treasure and uh, and physical treasure too. But woe betide you if you piss them off, because they'll they'll bite you in the bum. I always found it interesting that the druids uh, would sometimes be called adders, and it seems as though at least the uh, Celtic lands did have a um, very very much an awareness of these serpent people or the serpent spirits. And, and it seems as though the indigenous priesthood did have a relationship with them. And if, if you go to Africa, if you go to India, if you go, I mean, the native Americans, it really does seem. Yeah. Well, the rainbow serpents in Australia is an incredibly important figure in, in Aboriginal a, myth. And that's associated with, with the water of the rainbow. So it's just so fascinating. Yeah, and, and formed the land, you know, kind of did its travels across the land, creating all the sacred spaces there. So, yeah, no, it's, I agree. It's, it's it, with the exception of poor old Ireland that doesn't have any. It's, <laughs> uh, it's, <laughs> snakes are really important. It's funny how, you know, the, 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 in the West, the dominant sort of religious model vilifies snakes and yet, yeah. and yet snakes are, the serpent spirits are so much connected with life force and uh, the, the wisdom and water and so many things that we couldn't, we, in a very material way even, could not live without. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, even even to the point of they're the symbol for the caduceus, the, the you know the the symbol of medicine, aren't they? The entwined snakes, absolutely. Which which you get on 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 purubas. Purubas are uh, the ritual daggers that are used in Tibet and Nepal, uh, very often to to pin down uh, hostile energies, pin down. Um, sort of, you know, d- demonic spirits or something in exorcisms. They're a very important ritual object, but they always have these, well, not always, but they very often will have this kind of crossed snake pattern on, like the caduceus. That's intriguing. Um, so when it comes to, when it comes to uh, the vocation of, of shamanism, uh, of, of, this, of this work you do, I mean, there's really, there's, I think that an important point that I feel like you've been making throughout the entire interview is the level of commitment that is present for mm. somebody who is really serious about this path. Um, mm. And I, I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit on that sort of the gravity of the commitment that's involved with, with doing this, because I think, you know, we touched on it earlier a little bit, but I think in the West, there's an especially sort of, uh, commercializing, trivializing tendency, mm. and uh, you know, maybe yeah. I was hoping you could set the record straight a little bit about about that. Um, I look, I got no problem with people kind of learning, you know, animism and whatever. And if they go off and do a workshop and learn how to be a better person and make offerings to the local land spirits because they they've learned that. That's great. I mean, I really mean that. That that's a wonderful thing for people to do. And like I said, if there were more animistic people in the world, you know, the world would be a better place. But if you're really being called deeply to do shamanism, you kind of don't have an option. You you have to do it, and it does take over your life. Um, the spirits work you hard, um, and and in, in a way, it's kind of blissful because it's a fit. I mean, look, I'm dyslexic. I'm I I was not very kind of. Um, competent in in many ways in the ordinary work i wasn't groomed for success at school because you know i was kind of thrown on the rubbish heap and i left school without any qualifications whatsoever literally none so you know i was pretty unemployable in the kind of ordinary scheme of things so shamanism kind of came along and uh, and and it, it's it's not like I chose it because it was, it was all I could do, but it was kind of, there was the marriage there, you know, there was the meeting between it and me. And, and it was a path that was sort of natural to me and easy. And it's flowed because, you know, my whole kind of life has been somewhat serendipitous. Like I said, I've always been in the right place at the right time, but I've also always had that commitment. Um, Not everybody will have that commitment. I've, I don't teach a huge amount, but I have, talk quite a bit, I guess, over the last 30 years. And I guess in the scheme of things, I probably only met like a handful of people that I feel really get it. Lots of people have learned kind of shamanic first aid and they've gone off and they can use little bits and do a journey or, you know, make an offering or whatever. But some people, they're just different and they, they have something that others don't and they pick it up and they run with it and they get it. I can't tell you exactly why they get it, but it's like they fit. They fit in the in the jigsaw. They they just are of the right shape. But not everybody is. And that goes way back to all of the shamanic traditions. There's a lovely story I often quote to people um, from the Evenk, 
the Evenka, the people from whom the word shamanism actually originated, or shaman, shaman, came from. Um, the word shaman means uh, to get excited or to heat up, to get frenzied, because that's what happens when the spirits come into you. And the Evenks say that everybody before they're born, all of their souls sit like birds on the world tree. The world tree is the tree in the center of the world that connects the lower world, middle world, and upper worlds together. And um, all the souls of everybody sits like birds on branches of this tree. And then they say, the souls of ordinary people on one branch and the souls of shamans on another. And that's really implying that shamans are different and they're born different. And that's not in any way to say that they are better, but they are different. There is a, a weirdness about shamans, the poor, miserable buggers that kind of end up having to do it. And they are different. They, you know, I, I, was, um, I was talking with uh, Martin Pactel years back, and, and he was saying in his kind of tradition where he, he learned his tradition from, the elders would say that all of the shamans, when they're, when they're very young, are scared because they don't quite understand the world in the same way that other people do. And I think that's also true too. Um, so shamans are born different without a shadow of a doubt. They're chosen by the spirits. That doesn't mean that they're going to become shamans. There's a, there's a, I can't remember the Mongolian word, but the Mongolians have a word which translates as chrysalis, like a, like a butterfly chrysalis. And they say that some people, never emerge as butterflies. They stay as chrysalises. And those people tend to have miserable, often short lives because they're kind of ridden by the spirits and pushed towards it, but they kind of don't have access to it. So they're kind of, you know, squashed between a rock and a hard place, if you like. I love how you articulated that. We've, we've spoken about this before on the show and amongst our, each, with each other, um, how shamans and even magicians to a certain degree have to have kind of this outsider quality. And it sounds like you kind of have the classic, almost the classic story of, of being that outsider. Yeah. And I had, I had what I consider to be shaman sickness in, in my sort of yeah. teens, you know, when I got, I got really dysfunctional around the time that the spirit started coming to me and, you know, I, I, I didn't have any contact with mental health settings back then, but probably I would have been put in hospital. Um, you know, I was deeply agoraphobic. I was deeply depressed. I would spend time sort of sitting under a table. You know, I was really dysfunctional and it was, it was classic shamanic illness, which is part of very often in, in traditional cultures that, that the people that are going to kind of follow that path, they get ill and they, they their world falls apart. It's very often a, a sort of psycho-spiritual illness. So it didn't manifest particularly in me in a physical way, but certainly psychologically I wasn't well. Yeah, and it, it seems as though the calling to be a shaman is oftentimes could be seen as a curse rather than yeah. something amazing and beautiful. And I think it's both, yeah. And and again, what happened for me classically is is that as soon as I kind of embraced shamanism, I got better, and it never came back. And that mm. that's you know that's very often you'll hear you know that's the same sort of thing. I mean, in traditional culture, what would happen with somebody would be kind of spotted which of course didn't happen to me because nobody knew about shamanism, but then they would call in the shamans and the shamans would kind of do a diagnosis on the kid and, and they would sort of say, well, yeah, this person looks like they need to be a shaman. And then they would kind of take them on a training and whatever. And, and then the kid would get better. 
But all the doctors and all of the sort of normal medicine people that they took them to before that didn't affect them, didn't, you know, the person didn't get better. It was only when the intervention of the shaman happened that they got better. And that's just all over, all the cultures kind of, you know, have that story. Well, that's, yeah, and that's something um, that, that we have talked about here because, you know, for instance, I, I had a similar, I wasn't dyslexic as a child, but I had a similar, I was consistently ostracized mm-hmm. growing up beaten up, spit on, mm. treated badly, mm. you know, just the classic experience. And um, it, I, I was an outsider from the start mm. and, and agoraphobia, a lot of the things people don't realize that th- these, these sort of callings aren't something that is, is chosen to, to acquire a social status because it, it places you squarely outside of I, I struggle still with agoraphobia at times. I mean I, I, I have trouble around around crowds of people, but I'm perfectly yeah. at home around spirits. I yeah. I I prefer interacting with spirits to people most of the yeah, time to yeah. be entirely honest. Yeah, with sure. You. Yeah. You know, and it, it it is a painful life in that regard. And also another thing um I think that you've touched on here is the shamanic crisis. You know yeah. the 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 crisis is a a real thing and even in a more western you could say shamanic or proto shamanic um like what i think what if we were to say what european witchcraft truly was or maybe still is uh as opposed to the misunderstanding of it mm. sort of an indigenous european shamanism and even within that sort of uh, tradition there's the crisis that occurs yeah uh, absolutely i would i would say more of a european animism but that's that's a, yes. a, 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 yes. a splitting hair thing but but you've also got to do it um i got a severe telling off from uh, a shaman friends about sort of um 12 years ago or so because i i quite I quite like being kind of academic about it. And because of running Sacred Hoop magazine, I've really had to know about this culture and that culture and stuff. It's been a great education. And I wasn't doing a lot of shamanism. And uh, I uh, I was in a ceremony with her. She was a Tuvan-trained shaman. And, um, you know, uh, she wasn't from Tuva, but she lived a lot of her life in Tuva and uh, trained there. And uh, I got taken by the spirits in in trance spontaneously in in this ceremony which i wasn't running and uh and had quite a quite a uh, well people were actually concerned that i was having a heart attack it was quite quite kind of full-on i was all right but um but uh, it was quite dramatic for other people and uh, she had to put me back together at the end of it and uh, and she said if you don't do it you'll die it was that blunt and and that's absolutely true she said i've seen it happen before if you don't work with the spirits if you don't do it if you just write about it and whatever the spirits will kill you and and that that is part of the the kind of the tradition around it if you don't do it but you kind of you know you should be the spirits give you a hard time and they will kill you they will kill you that's that's very much you know it's not a cozy path it's not a nice path i often often kind of say to people you know shamanism is not cozy and it's not nice and given the fact that it goes back to human prehistory it kind of makes sense because we're dealing with something that stretches stretches back so far it has a primal character to yeah it. it does and that's another important thing because shamanism had to work Shamanism is pragmatic. People relied on it in order to stay alive. And 
they didn't invest energy, wasting energy in stuff that didn't work. So there is that kind of real need for it to work in a tribal culture if you're relying on it for your very survival. And, and I think that's also part of the problem with modern traditions, you know, the kind of the urban shamanism, for want of a better way of putting it, or the new age stuff, is that it doesn't have to work. It can be a kind of a quaint sort of hobby, but you don't rely on it very often for your life. And, uh, you know, if the ceremony kind of goes wrong, you, you order a pizza and watch a film. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not the same. It, it, but if, you're, if, if that's all you've got and you're really relying on it, and then you've also developed it over generation, over generation, over generation, because you, you have relied on it all the time, it kind of gets a sharp edge to it. You know, it's pragmatic. Now, I do want to ask you about um, something we t touched on uh, a couple of minutes back uh -huh. and just shift gears a little bit backwards. Um, so the relationship between Buddhism and shamanic practice yeah. in tantric Buddhism, uh, you know, especially in Nepal, Tibet, Mongolia, I'm really, I'm really interested in that because I have seen, uh, it be celebrated and i've also seen it be criticized as leading away from the dharma so yeah i was wondering on your th about your thoughts on that. okay i think that's in part that's to do with the, the later reform schools the later reform schools okay so a little potted history of tibet it's buddhism started with patmasambhava like i said in the eighth century and then gradually it kind of different groups sort of split off a bit like like originally there were the catholics and then the protestants came and the protestants kind of stripped out all the kind of magical stuff that the catholics did and it became kind of you know a bit boring and black and white and you know you know what i'm saying um and so uh the, the later schools which the generally are called the yellow hats because they wear yellow hats um, they, they are less in favor of magic and, uh, that's not to say they don't practice it because they do, but, but they certainly take much more of a dim view uh, of, uh, of shamanism. The, um, the Buddhists that went into Mongolia were mostly the yellow hats. Uh, Dalai Lama is a yellow hat and, um, the, the, the Mongolians kind of, well, they actually formed the first Dalai Lama and the word Dalai Lama is a Mongolian word, but uh, it means ocean of wisdom. And um, uh, so th when the Buddhists went to Tibet, they, uh, to Mongolia rather, they, they really tried to smash shamanism like the Christian church did the witches in Europe. And they persecuted it enormously and they would sort of, well, they would do the same. They would even burn shamans at the stake. And uh, they gathered up all the sacred objects and burnt them. And, you know, it, they gave shamanism a hard time. So the yellow hats are much less in favor of shamanism. The red hats are more accepting of it and do more of the magical stuff and have more of the older pre-Buddhist traditions. Um, like working with the Puraba. You know, the Puraba is this, this sort of dagger that I was talking about a little while ago. It's... Uh, you do exorcisms with it. They're deeply magical objects. Um, they have a whole load of traditions, and you take an initiation to work with the spirit of the Puraba, which is Dorji Puraba. And um, then you have all these practices and ways of working with it to pin down enemies, to pin down hostile spirits, uh, to uh, to bless people with the, the end that isn't pointy, the handle end. Um, 
all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's, you know, there were lots of books written about the, the Purba practices, and that, that is pre-Buddhist. Uh, uh, scholars think that probably the Purba was a, originally a nomad's tent peg, uh. and that's where the kind of pinning things down bit comes from. So it's, you know, it's a really ancient tradition, and some of the other things in Tibet are the same. You know, I mean, uh, weather magic and all of that you, you find in Tibetan traditions. And you have this, this non-monastic tradition of the Nagpa, which is what, they, uh, what I was invited to take ordination in. Uh, they don't work in monasteries, but they kind of live in the community and live in villages, and they kind of do much more of the, of the shamanic stuff. Um, like I say, they do the exorcisms and they do the weather magic and they bless the crops and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, the nitty gritty stuff that a village shaman would do. Thank you very much for that. That's very interesting. Um, it does seem, it does seem, I, I was, I wasn't aware of the burning of shamans and the persecution to that degree. Uh, that actually kind of changes my perspective a little bit. Yeah, it it really happened, and um, and and also that's why a lot of Mongolian traditions are, are quite Buddhist. There's a lot of Buddhism that's kind of leached into Mongolian shamanism, especially in the main parts of Mongolia. The further you get away from Ulaanbaatar, the more old style it gets. Um, you know, like the, the the people in the the far north up by the reindeer, and uh, you know, on the sort of Russian border that live a long way away from the the center of of culture. They they hold on more to the old traditions and have less Buddhism. But a lot of the urban stuff um, has a lot of Buddhist influences in it. And sometimes shamans will also be Buddhist lamas. It's 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 quite jumbled up. There's a term for it often. Um, they, they talk about yellow shamanism and black shamanism. Black shamanism is the old stuff and yellow shamanism is, is the sort of Buddhist tinged, um, uh, you know, shamanism. But that's not to say it's bad. I, 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 I mean, I do an awful lot of yellow shamanism because of, you know, working with Tibetan traditions too. So they kind of merge together. I don't want to keep you for too long cause it's, it's much, it's much later there in Wales. <laughs> Uh, it's it's only it's only five to eight in the evening. It's the night is young. <laughs> Maybe we could talk about ritual objects just a little bit, though. All right. What do you want to know? Well, the importance of them. So these tokens, these objects, these tools. What's why are they so important right. to the practice? A lot of people. A lot of people think that a ritual object is just symbolic, and you kind of don't need them. And and kind of on one level, that's a little bit true. But, but from a shamanic point of view, ritual objects are alive and they have a spirit. And they not only have the spirit of the particular ritual object, but they have the spirit of that class of objects. So it's like, think of a drum. A drum has its own spirit. It's like a house that a spirit lives in. And you tend that spirit, you make offerings to it, you sing songs to it, you love it, you have a relationship with that spirit. And then beyond that, there is this kind of the collective spirit of drums. You know, it's like, it's like maybe an ant has its own soul and then there's the group soul of ants. Mm -hmm. So uh, all ritual objects have that and they're houses, they're houses that spirits live in. So you enter into that dialogue with those spirits and those spirits are alive and the same thing with a ceremony um okay i, I said earlier that i i work with the native american pipe the sacred pipe the chanupa 
And the pipe has a spirit, but also the pipe ceremony has a spirit. And so whenever I join the pipe and I'm taking part in a pipe ceremony, I'm also in the kind of energy body of that spirit of the ceremony as well as the spirit of all of the pipes and the spirit of my own pipe. So any tradition that has got its own history that's been built up and any ritual object associated with that, it's so rich with spirits. Spirits are not just uh, you know, material. A concept has a spirit. There's a spirit of peace. There's a spirit of war. And there's a spirit of, of, of a ceremony. So when you do something repeatedly, you're kind of tapping into that spirit and feeding it and making it stronger. And, uh, and, and it's a reciprocal kind of relationship because it then gives its power to you, you know, in the way that you work with it. So ritual objects are really important, but it's important to think of them as houses. Every ritual object is a house for a particular form of spirit that does a particular job. And they, because they're alive, they are blessed, they are worked with, they're kept in sacred ways. The different spirits will have different kind of prohibitions and prescriptions that you have to kind of honor and maintain with them. Uh, and um, yeah, okay, I'm working with a spirit at the moment. I, I, it came to me by accident. Um, uh, I, I, I commissioned a ritual object from a, a shaman blacksmith in Mongolia and it came to me and it, as soon as I started working with it, it I, I got taken over by a, a very odd spirit and, and I didn't know what the hell was going on. So I asked my Mongolian friend who acted as the go-between, who's a shaman, and uh, they went and talked to the blacksmith and the blacksmith sort of said, oh, yeah, it, it was actually my ritual object. I decided I didn't need it anymore. So I didn't make one. I kind of passed, you know, Nick mine. And, and I, I described what happened to me and the nature of this spirit uh, to, to my shaman friend. And, and she kind of checked it out with the, with the, 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 the spirit you know, the, the blacksmith and yeah, it all kind of tallied. So I ended up with this object that was a house that had this a little bit pissed off uh, Mongolian mountain spirit living inside <laughs> it, wondering why it had ended up in Wales. And for the last six months or so, I've been, I've been having to do regular ceremonies with this object to, to kind of get in good faith with the, with the spirit that was in it, you know? So, so, Objects are houses and they can be very powerful. Uh, you know, the spirits that live in an object can be very powerful. That's super interesting. And yeah, um, I'm glad we went down this road now. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about houses and maybe in relation to dolls? Because I, I think some of our listeners will, will yeah, find that interesting okay. since we just kind of talked about some uh, mm -hmm. Afro-Caribbean stuff and they obviously have use of dolls. Um yeah. What about from your lineages? Uh, absolutely. And and very much from, from the Mongolian, not uh, yeah, and Tibetan actually thinking about it too. Yeah. Um, I work with dolls quite a lot. Uh, I tend to use the, the Mongolian word on God for them. Um, now an on God is, uh, or an on gone, there's two words. On gone is, as I understand it, is a singular and on God is the plural, but uh, they are, they are both the spirit that a shaman uh, is taken over by. They're the shaman's spirit helper, but they're also the house that the shaman's helper spirit lives in. 
and uh, and they can take the form of uh, of, of a, like an anatomical doll, or they can take the form of uh, a, like a patchwork quilt, almost you know, kind of piece of textile art. Strange-looking things, some of them. Um, so they're dolls in that way, and a spirit lives in them. So if you've got to help a spirit, it's a little bit like a fetish, you know, like a like a like a Zuni um, animal fetish or something like that. It's in the shape of that spirit, and you make offerings, you put it on your altar, and it it's the house that the spirit lives in, uh, which you kind of pay respect to. That's one way of working with them, but also. There's a whole load of stuff about um, inviting like the spirit of an illness into a doll. This is very much uh, a Tibetan tradition, uh, generally called a liberation ceremony uh, or a ransom ceremony is also the other word for it. And so you do a particular ceremony where you, you kind of pull out the spirit of illness from somebody, put it into a doll which is dressed in that person's clothes and uh, and then you separate and isolate that uh, that that doll um, with the spirit inside it away from the person, and generally the person then goes off and changes their clothes and often changes their name too. And you've got this trapped illness spirit in this doll, which you then kill, you liberate, and very often you use a puraba, that dagger I was talking about. And you do it in in a Buddhist way. You do it in a compassionate way because you see the spirit of illness as a poor suffering being and you liberate it from its bad karma so that it can have a more fortunate rebirth. Uh, so that's one way of working with dolls. If I, uh, if I'm doing some simple work for somebody like maybe somebody's having an operation and they're in hospital, I will create a doll which represents that person and I will put protection around it and blessing around it and, and kind of, you know, do, do that kind of, um, it's almost sympathetic magic, uh, working with that doll as a surrogate for the person. Uh, in the pipe ceremony, you can do that. You could put a doll down in the middle of the room and do a pipe healing with the sacred pipe over that doll, the doll being a surrogate for the sick person. And sometimes you use another human being and they're a surrogate for the sick person. So, it's, uh, it's, I mean, this is a vast subject and I feel like I'm galloping through it at lightning <laughs> speed, but, but it's a vast subject. I mean, it's, it, and it's, it's incredibly rich. So typically, how do you dispose of the doll afterwards or what, what do you do? Is it burned? It, or? it depends. It depends on, on the nature of the work that you've been doing. Sometimes, yeah, if it's an exorcism and you've done, you've done the, 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 you know, you trap the spirit in the doll and it's like, it's like working with a toxic substance you know you kind of almost have to wear rubber gloves when you're dealing with it and and then you you kill the spirit but you've still got the corpse left and then generally you cut up the corpse very often this is made of dough uh sometimes of uh, of clay but i generally make it out of dough and uh, and then i will burn it um sometimes um i i, I was working with a, a nepali shaman friend some while ago and we did this sort of ceremony and we put the the clay dolls that we made uh into a river uh, uh this was way out in the sticks in the uh, top end of iceland it was an incredibly remote place and uh there was a sort of glacial melt river going past the place where we were and we just put the the the, the dolls into that um, so it depends on the nature. If it's uh, if it's something like uh, maybe 
I'm doing a little bit of work for somebody that's having a hard time or they're in hospital or something, I often use little dolls which are reusable and I kind of shake out the person at the end. And uh, I have a little bag of dolls in one of the drawers in my shrine room, which I kind of pull out for such cases. So, you know, some dolls get reused, but you always are always hygienic with it. You always have to kind of like sterilize the doll and, and kind of, you know, think, think medical scrubs all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I know in, in other forms of doll magic that I've tried to educate myself about, often you have to have some kind of uh, sympathetic link to the person you're doing the healing or other kind of magic on like hair or a piece of clothing. Or yeah. It's good to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to do that. If you don't have that, do you guys do like a ritualized naming of the doll or like a baptism or if it's uh if it's a ransom ceremony, then the person generally steps away from it and changes their clothes. And like I say, often changes their name. Uh, so the doll in effect becomes the sick person. Um, and, and that's why the spirit of illness is kind of happy with it until you kill the spirit of illness. Um, uh, if, if, yeah, I've kind of lost the thread of where I was at. What, what were you just asking? Oh, I, you kind of answered it. I was just asking, uh, the, you know, okay. the method by which you, you turn the doll from just a. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes like, like when I was working with that Nepalese shaman friend, he was, uh, he was working, we were putting little bits of, of, of hair and toenail clippings and all of that sort of stuff in, into the, uh, into the clay doll too. And very often I'll get people to send me a bit of old t-shirt or something. And these dolls can be really simple. Um, uh, uh, in, in Britain, they're called ice lollies. I think you call them ice pops or something in, in America, you know, kind of frozen sort of uh, not ice cream, but sort of frozen things on a stick. Yeah, yeah. Ice, yeah? ice pop, popsicle. Ice pops, okay. Yeah, so I, 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 I have a little bag of the sticks from those, uh, and, and sometimes I just paint a, like a, a two eyes and a dot for the, for the, for the, for the mouth and, and wrap a bit of someone's T-shirt or something around that, and that represents that person then. So, you know, it can be quite, uh, quite simple, quite rough and ready in that way. But, yeah, a, a token from somebody – Old clothes are really quite good because, you know, they're kind of not so icky as, as bits of fingernail and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes that, that makes sense. It's, it's also remarkable <laughs> how around the world, um, you know, some of these, these technology, ritual technologies are, are pretty much the same. And it's, it's just yeah. how they're employed and deployed. Yeah, totally right. Well, like I say, we're all two-leggeds, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so, oh, please go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say we've we're kind of sprinting here at the end through the uh, ritual implements, which really should have been the bulk of the conversation. <laughs> but um, we talked about drums. What what else can you say about uh, sound and music when speaking to uh, spirits? Because bells are a prominent uh, part. Yeah, as well as, I I work with bells yeah. and I work with jaw harp yes, too. Jaw harp. So how does how do they play into it? What how does that work? Jaw harp is a little bit like uh, um, a little bit like a drum in a way. Um, in Mongolia, they they tend to do the big work at night, and I tend to do the big work at night. And in the daytime, they do something that is called walking or traveling shamanism. And they don't wear the full costume, and they tend not to use the drum, but they work with uh, with the jaw harp. And uh, now these are specialist jaw harps. 
the jaw harp that I've got, it was made for me in a ritual way. Um, it was empowered in Mongolia and we, I, I, I wasn't there, but we did like a live Skype. And so I'm watching the, 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 the ceremony while the shaman is doing all the blessing. And it was made wow. by a, by a, a shaman blacksmith that makes ritual objects. And it had to come from uh, the, I think it was the left-hand side of a horse's bit, you know, the, the thing that goes in the horse's mouth. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's incredibly prescribed. So this was all kind of done. So it's not just a kind of like a musical instrument you'd buy off the shelf. And it's also comes with something called a, a manjig, which is like a bundle of cloth snakes, naggers, lots of them and uh, various other sort of objects that are tied to it as well. So you work with that, which is sort of fixed to the jaw harp, and you kind of drape all the snakes down your back, and uh, which look a bit like dreadlocks or something, you know, and, uh, and, and you play the jaw harp, and you go into trance, and you call the spirits just the same way as you would with a drum. Okay. Um, so it's, it's, it's not music as such. Um, you know, just because it's a musical instrument, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's music. You know, it's a, it's a ritual object. It's a tool. And uh, bells, yeah, I, I mean, lots of lots of shamanic gear has bells on it. I mean, when I'm kind of in all my armor, I, I ring and jingle and, you know, it's like a, like, a, like a sleigh. You know, I've got these big bells called tiger bells, which are about an inch across, and they're really loud and noisy, and they're all over it and fixed to it and things. So, so it, you know, you, you, you kind of wake the neighbors when you put it on, you know. <laughs> and, um, uh, but again, they're not kind of musical stuff as such. I work with, because I do Tibetan practice, um, I work with drums in that and uh, and bells and i use them to accompany songs tibetan songs that i sing in the practice and then when we get into tibetan stuff too there's more kind of ghoulish stuff like um uh, i've got uh, do you know what a damaru is the, the like a, a drum that's like shaped like an hourglass with two two heads and a narrow waist in the middle yes yeah i got a damaru made from two human skulls and i've wow. got um uh, a, a thigh bone trumpet as well, which uh, you know you, you blow, and that, that's part of the Tibetan tradition. Uh, you know, they're, they're Tibetan ritual objects. They use a lot of bits from dead people in Tibet, uh, which was uh, you know, and, and still is kind of very much part of the tradition. Wow, talk about having spirits attached to your objects. I mean, that's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my my place is a bit like a kind of museum or something. I mean, I absolutely love ritual objects, and I, I've got. I don't just. I I kind of do collect them, but I also use all the stuff that I collect, and I've got a lot of of ritual objects because it's my main sort of way of working, really. And you also you help people. You help find homes for ritual objects as well you have uh, they tend to come to me yeah my spirits tell me that ritual objects like me and it seems to be the case because they come incredibly easily very often and i get very strange ones that come to me so yes um uh some i give away uh but some i i sell i mean you know we all have to earn a living so so i have a, a a gallery uh, that that sells um, some old stuff and some not quite so old and some new kind of ritual objects. That's called Three Worlds. Three the number worlds dot co dot uk is my gallery website. And there's also my podcast on there too. I do a podcast called Three Worlds about shamanism, and uh, there's also a whole load of articles from Sacred Hoop about different aspects of shamanism on that website too that you can download as PDFs and read. 
Yeah, I just found out about the podcast last night when I was getting ready for this, and uh-huh. I wish I would have known earlier. But yeah, I, I, I listened to a few episodes, and yeah, if, if you guys out there listening are interested in in what Nick is talking about here, he he covers all this and more on the podcast. So highly recommend that. It's really well done. Thank you, thank you. Um, you also, God, we could go on for a half hour talking about everything else you do. <laughs> you 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 run the magazine Sacred Hoop, which. Yep. people can find online sacred hoop sacred hoop.org o-r-g yeah okay and you mentioned iceland a little while ago and you are doing a a workshop of sorts in in Reykjavik. yeah i don't often come out of my valley in west wales but uh uh, I've been dragged out at the end of April to go and teach a, a, a workshop in a, a a little place just north of Reykjavik. Uh, it's in a rural place at the foot of a sacred mountain. Uh, it's kind of considered to be the guardian mountain uh, of, of Reykjavik. It's a beautiful place. I've, I've been to the mountain twice before and made offerings there. And uh, uh, there's a center there, which uh, some people are organizing it for me and they've, they've hired the center. So I'm teaching a like a basic workshop that's going to be an introduction to journeying and an introduction to working with the spirits of the land and maybe some altars and whatever i tend not to plan too much it'll kind of be what you know i I work with whatever is in the room but the basic idea is that it's going to be for beginners that want to kind of learn uh about uh, about how to do kind of you know shamanic journeying and working with the spirits but more experienced people would probably get stuff from it too and there's there's still openings yeah, there are. There's still places, I think. Um, Friends, I actually have to uh, jump off. I have to run to the post office before it closes. But Nicholas, please accept my gratitude for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute delight. Oh, to you're talk very to you. welcome. Thank you. It's It's been great fun. And thank it's you so much. Fun. And we would love to have you back on again sometime in the future. I'm sure Dominic agrees yeah, sure. with that. Um, so sure. please accept my my no worries. Please accept my well my well wishes toward you and, and my you. gratitude. And I will uh, hopefully talk to both of you soon. All right, I'll talk to you later. Okay, thank you. So uh, if people want to know about the the workshop that I'm doing in Iceland and the other bits and pieces that I do, I've got my own kind of teaching website, which is Taksang. Uh, Taksang is uh, Tibetan, or it's a place in Bhutan. It's Tiger's Nest. And I'll spell that. It's T-A-K-T-S-A-N-G, taxang.co.uk. And that's all the details of my teaching and, and bits and pieces on it. Okay. And Reykjavik is actually, it's a, it's a nice middle ground for if people are coming from America because... Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's really not that far. I, I think it's only just a few hours from maybe the, the northeast of, of the United States. Yeah. And it's such a such a lovely country. I mean, I've, I've just fallen in love with, with Iceland. It's the people are so friendly and it's so kind of laid back and, and the landscape is incredible. The land is so alive. You know, there's kind of like spirits everywhere. It's an incredible place. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And in April, it's going to be beautiful. So yeah, it will. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely recommend that for people. What else we got? So we got sacred hoop. We got your three worlds. We got your podcast. We got Reykjavik. Did we miss anything? Oh, your books. <laughs> uh, I don't so, do many books. I do a few, but, but yeah. uh, not many. I'm, mostly I write articles. I mean, there's lots of articles of mine on on the Three Worlds website and also on the Sacred Hoop website too. 
so right. uh, you know, it's it's and and in fact, looking at it, there's stuff on the Taxang website as well. There's a page called Reading, which I guess are articles. I can't remember what I've done. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. So your newest book was Sacred Drums of Siberia. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, that's that's a book that it's uh, it's it's very photo rich. It's lots of photos of shaman's drums. It's not a it's not a very thick book, but it's got a lot of photos that generally haven't been uh, available in the West of traditional drums from Mongolia and Siberia and talking about the whole culture of, of shaman's drums. Yeah. Excellent. And then you've got the resplendent other. What is that one? That's a book about my paintings. That's a vanity project. I paint. And so it's a retrospective of my paintings since I was a kind of teenager up to now. Okay. And then you've got Voices of the Earth and the Book of the Shaman. Yeah. Voices of the Earth. Uh, that's an old book now, but it's still around. And uh, I, 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 I like that book because it was, it was kind of full color and it was beautifully done. I really liked the, 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 the production team that did it. And it's very much about craft work. It's really a book about Native American style uh, medicine objects. And they, I teach beadwork in it and how to make drums and how to make rattles and stuff. But it's very visual. I mean, it's full color throughout. And it's, uh, it's very much a hands-on book. Uh, yeah. So if you can get a secondhand copy of that, which I think you can probably get for a couple of dollars on Amazon or something, you might enjoy it. Okay. Very cool. And then finally your music. So you're, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I like to keep busy. Um, <laughs> music is my passion. Um, uh, I, I, I sometimes jokingly say that I'd rather do music than shamanism. And, uh, and in part that's a bit true. I, 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 I had a long time passion for medieval music and world music. So I play a lot of medieval instruments and, um, you know, stuff from the troubadours and the cantigas to Santa Maria, uh, stuff from the sort of 12th, 13th century. Um, and, uh, and I also sort of, you know, enjoy plugging in on electric guitar and playing as well. So I, I have a small recording studio, um, and kind of release albums for myself for fun and you know maybe sell about five a year or something but it, it, it's it's fun and i do it you know i love doing it i love the process of recording recording is sheer magic and and is kind of connected to the spirits because i work with the spirits you know i make prayers every time i i record and and i ask for them to come through me and and i know it'll sound corny but i don't know where the music comes from it's like it's this extraordinary journey that happens with music and and when i'm i'm sort of um recording because i play everything you know so it's like I, I i put one piece down and then i play another piece on top and and sometimes the most extraordinary magic happens and i think how the hell did that come about you know i sometimes listen to a completed thing and think how did i do that not because it's good but because i don't understand the process you know <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds very much like maybe how how you work with spirits. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I have an altar in my in my recording studio. You know, I really, really kind of try and, and do that in, as much as I can in, in all aspects of my life. Well, very interesting, Nick. Thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Ah, it's been and, great. Um, Thank you. Yeah, on behalf of Janice and myself, thanks again for doing this. And my uh, pleasure. Hope, hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been good. Thanks. And, and fun talking to you. And you've asked some great questions too. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Have a good night. And to you.
Okay, that was a, a fantastic talk with Nick. We appreciate it very much. Uh, it was very enlightening, and he was a real fun guy to talk to. Had real kind of contagious energy. Uh, yeah, it was inspiring, really. I mean, I felt like I was talking to somebody who was intelligent and friendly and down to earth, while at the same time clearly demonstrated mastery of a subject which is filled with all kinds of um, subtleties, nuances, variances. But he seemed to really understand and communicate very well the essence of uh, one of mankind's oldest traditions and, and, and really one of the oldest, if not the oldest form of esotericism. Um, I know that the, the way he kept sticking to the definition of animism as opposed to shamanism was useful because I do think that that distinction is often forgotten or neglected or not understood. And um, though the two, there is a sort of interweaving and interdependence, um, I think that in order to understand shamanism, it does need to be defined in a way that is consistent with the uh, history and practice of it. Yeah, absolutely. I really did like how he emphasized um, trance and its connection to shamanism and, like you said, differentiated uh, between animism and shamanism. I think that was very valuable, and all the stuff he said is very valuable. I would highly recommend everyone go out and check his podcast. It's called Three Worlds Podcast, as well as all his other things that we talked about. Well, the Sacred Hoop magazine especially, because, I mean... I remember reading The Sacred Hoop as a teenager. I mean, he's been doing it so long. He's been covering shamanism around the world. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the only thing I regretted about the interview is that you had to be involved. But other than that, it was really good. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so everyone, you can find us, as always, on Facebook, uh, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, and all those places. Um Give us a review. That is always very helpful. And we also have a Patreon that you can check out and help us uh, keep doing this show. Anything else? Yeah, we're grateful to you for listening, and we're thankful to you for your suggestions about potential guests, which we get from time to time. Uh, we're looking forward to moving forward with this, and we're improving things day by day. We did have some technical difficulties uh, on the last couple of podcasts with microphone uh, that seem to be going uh, we have since remedied this so that will not be an ongoing issue but we did want to inform everyone uh, that that is that we did triumph over that hydra and like you said it's it's going to improve even more from here we've got some plans on upgrading our equipment and whatnot in the near future so yeah like share subscribe tell people about us um, you know, and uh, always feel free to reach out. Insights, opinions, questions, criticisms are all welcome. On that note, we will see you in the next episode. <laughs>